grateful to be back in the house of the Lord. Um, we've had the privilege of working so far through the book of Acts, and we've um, crept all the way up to Acts chapter 17. So before we begin, I want to let you all know, if you don't know, that next week is National Back to Church Sunday. National Back to Church Sunday. And in um, many of the conversations that I have with uh, you know, different pastors and preachers and leaders around the area, you know, there is a very similar trend um, post-pandemic or, or still in the midst of pandemic um, that, that many churches have seen, you know, our church being included with many people who have not returned back to the uh, pulpits, uh, to the pews rather. And so I think next week is a good time to remind people that it is essential that we gather. It is essential for the uh, spiritual health of the individual, but also as the body of believers collectively that that we gather. So next week is Back to Church Sunday. Um, So if you know somebody who needs to get back to church, bring them, tell them. If you know somebody um, who hadn't been to church and who needs to be in church, bring them. We love to have them. Uh, We love to see them back in the house of the Lord. So uh, please remember that. And then also um, on next Saturday, there will be a Let Your Light Shine Fellowship and Worship with the women here at Harvest. It will be next Saturday from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. The cost is $20. And so there are some um, instructions here. If you want to see me afterwards, I'll give you some of these instructions if you are um, interested in being a part of that. Nevertheless, it is time for us to join back in the word of God this week. And we're looking again at Acts chapter 17. And if you remember, we've worked our way through and we've seen obviously some commonalities through everything that we have seen in the text. We've seen what happens when um, Paul and the other apostles and when they get to certain cities and when they preach the gospel. But I think the further we dig into this, I'm hoping that we will see more and more relevance to our own world, the more that we go through the text. And so you'll notice that the title of today's sermon is called The Idol Factory. It is The Idol Factory. And if you know anything about John Calvin, he said that the heart is factory. It is where most of our idols are conceived. So we're going to look today at this passage. And we're going to actually look at some pretty damning things about what we idolize, even in American culture. And I hope that it changes our perspective um, as a whole. But my prayer is that individually it will make us reevaluate our lives. So we're going to go ahead and jump into Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I'm going to start at verse number 16. Acts 17 and 16. You remember when we preached a few weeks ago um, concerning how we engage the culture, I mentioned this verse and I said we'll be getting back to it. Well, this is the point. Now we're getting back to it. It says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, 
may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange thing to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing stories, hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along, I observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having to determine allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the heart and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to share in the word of God. We thank you for another time to learn such rich and um, even difficult truths regarding our own lives, God. Lord, we pray that in every way that we are developing our own idols, that you will invade those places, God. Find the very things that we worship, that we love more than you, God. And we ask you to invade those places to take away every false object of our worship. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, it was, I don't think it was ironic, I think it was the divine providence of God that as I was getting ready for church this morning, I was on Instagram, as I want to do, and there was a post by this really, really solid guy named Daryl Harrison, and he said this, and I thought it was incredibly relevant for our sermon today. He wrote this, he said, be careful that you don't let the affections of your heart morph into idolatry. And how can you know if and when they have? You can know by whether you respond sinfully to your heart's affections not being fulfilled in the manner you desire. In the manner you desire. In some way, every single one of us in this room is, will, or has dealt with the problem of idolatry. We have crafted and created our own images and respects of what we believe about God. And it's not just us. Every town and city and nation that you would visit, 
that has ever existed has equally struggled with this one singular problem more than probably anything else. And you can trace this all throughout history, all throughout the annals of time. You will find idolatry. Now, this is as common an issue as you'll find anywhere. And I think as I just read from the quote, it is quite obvious for us that whenever we are putting something in the place of God that we shouldn't be, you can always tell by how we respond to what our heart desires. When things that we desire, whether they be things designed for, you know, the service of God or not, if our heart or in our actions respond sinfully when things don't go the way we desire, we have placed that thing, no matter what it is, in the place of God. And we have created for ourselves an idol. Some of you may be wrestling even right now with certain things in your life, where you are, how much you make, what's happening, your health, whatever the case may be. And your frustration may be growing that those things in your life are not going and happening the way that they should. And my question would be not that you're frustrated about it, but how are you responding and what drives that frustration that you have inevitably with life? Listen, it is a damning problem that we have in life and in our own society. When you look what happened, even with Paul and what happened with the people in Athens, he said that he could clearly see that there was there were idols in that city. He could clearly see that idolatry was a problem there. How does he know it? Well, when he gets there, he sees all these different temples of worship, even some of them referencing fertility gods were phallic in shape. And he looks around when he gets to this city and he says, this is a city full of their own idols. It's full of immorality. That's why the old saying goes, if you want to know what a city or a town represents, look for their tallest building. Back in the day, the tallest buildings would be the cathedrals. They would be the churches. Those would be the the centerpieces of society. But now, if you look downtown, the tallest buildings are no longer churches or cathedrals. They are commercial revenue, banks, anything that's going to generate a lot of money. And we make it clear, even in our own little city of Birmingham, no, we want the money. We want the business. We had an opportunity to either give people jobs or give people entertainment. We chose entertainment and we have each and every time. Because the reality is, is that every place you go, we are building and creating and crafting our own idols. What is that place most investing in? In a similar way, Paul gets to Athens and he sees the evidence of what these people value most in their lives And he addressed it. I hope that we notice what happens here. Paul gets to the city. He looks around and he sees the idolatry there. And he is motivated, provoked by the spirit to speak against what he saw. And so that's what he does. Now, how is it that Paul is able to come to this place and see clearly that there was a serious idolatry problem in the area? It brings us to our first point of today's sermon. The way that he is able to clearly see that there was idolatry was that he was outside of that culture. 
he was outside of that culture. Have you ever heard, is that old song that says, I guess I'm too close to the mirror to see what you see? Sometimes, even for those of us who are believers, we are far too ingratiated in the culture to actually see that there is a problem with what is happening. The way Paul has such a deep and relevant real perspective is that when he gets there, he is not a part of that culture. He has a completely separate culture of his Christianity. And I think that's important to know. And if you remember in the sermon a few weeks ago, I did say it is important that we are able to engage the culture. But the way that we are engaging the culture means that we were disengaged in the first place. There are times as believers where we need to be able to engage the culture, but not be a part of it. Not be a part of it. We need to be able to navigate in it. We talked about that. But the only way we can do that is by not being a part of it. What do I mean? You cannot be equally indulging yourself in the same thing that the culture is doing and think that you're going to have any weight in anything that you say. You're too much a part of it. Why shouldn't an alcoholic go back to a bar and witness? Well, you know, y'all really got an alcohol problem. Y'all need to lay this stuff down. You're an alcoholic. What can you tell me? You see, many times the ineffectiveness of the Christian life currently is that the very cultures that we're trying to address, we are very much a part of. The sedentary, self-indulged, high self-esteem, high pride society, oftentimes Christians are leading that narrative. And when it's proper for us to engage the culture, the problem is, is that there is no line of demarcation between us and the world. Why has the church itself grown so ineffective? Because people can't see the difference. People can't see the difference. I am not making this up. Recently, I was on Instagram again. That's where I get all my social commentary from. And it was this guy with this cool shirt on. He had some skinny jeans on. It was all dark, nice lighting in the back. And I was like, oh, he's going to one of those hippie preachers. And it wasn't. It was a comedian. But something happened. I realized that if I had the video silenced, I didn't know the difference. I didn't know the difference between a comedian and a hip hop current hip pastor. And I think that may be a problem. I couldn't tell the difference. And I think that's one of the big problems is that those of us who are supposed to be engaging and addressing the culture as Christians are being absorbed by it. When people look at us, they cannot tell us apart. And what happens is the cultural lines of our Christianity and truth are getting blurred. And so the church, namely the individuals who make up the church, we have lost our influence. The text says here that Paul got to the city and could perceive these idols were there because there was an obvious devotion to a culture unlike the one which he lived. So my question is, if Paul gets there and he can see these buildings and these temples of worship and he sees, ah, this place has an idol problem. They are worshiping the wrong thing. What are the signs for our culture? What are the things that we should be looking for in order what our culture is worshiping? So, you know, 
always feel like it's my job to do all the work for the sermon, and it's your job to listen and absorb it and apply it. You'll find it hilarious that this week, this past week, I work on my sermons from Sunday to Thursday. Sunday to Thursday, and it takes hours upon hours upon hours upon hours. And on Thursday, I had had a glitch with my computer. I go to my computer to finish the sermon, and it's gone. Gone, y'all. And I'm talking about, I done called Apple. I done done everything. I was like, it's, it's got to be somewhere. I'm arguing. I'm like, look, I put in the cloud. What's the point of the cloud if the cloud going to empty and ain't none of the stuff in the cloud? And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to come up with something. I'm going to find I'm going to dig through an old sermon. They don't be knowing no way. But I really felt like this was an important sermon to share. And one of the things that I did that I had to do over again was I got a uh, compiled this long list of stats. And what these stats are going to do, one, they're going to be eye opening, but they're going to tell us what our culture in America most idols. I want you to listen to this. What what commands our time in America? That's how you know what our idols are in our country. Every single day. There are 68 million pornographic searches, 68 million every single day. There is 16.9 million spent on porn every year. Looking at listen to this. Every second in our country, 28,258 people are watching porn every second. Every day, 2.5 billion emails are sent and received every day with porn in it. For the people who don't struggle with it, it's like, oh, man, we've got a porn problem. Glad I ain't got that problem. What about this? Online shopping. Okay, there we go. In the last year, leapt up to $861 billion. That's up. 44%. Now, I know what you're thinking. Come on, Brandon. I know how stats work. That's because we were in a pandemic, you would think. But there was also $1 trillion spent on commercial shopping in general. That is not food. That is not necessities. That is just commercial, leisurely shopping. It was $1 trillion spent on it. All right. So you say, all right, I ain't got no porn problem. I definitely ain't got no shopping problem. In America, 99% of households have at least one television in them. And on average, the television is on for more than eight hours a day. That's on average. 54% of five to six-year-olds, when asked, said that they would rather watch television than spend time with their fathers. The average screen time on a phone is more than five hours a day. In our culture, people, you know what our idols are? They're us. We are the idols. We are our own idols. Because our lives in America are about how much can I self-indulge in the things that bring me pleasure. 
And the reason why so many of us have lost influence is that many of us who call ourselves Christians are nothing more than the drunkard at the bar. That when the world sees what we are doing, there is no distinction between the way that we live and the way that they live in the culture as well. Not only does that familiarity numb our influence, but it also numbs our ability to even see that there is a problem in the first place. Some of us in this room are probably shocked to hear some of those stats, but there are others of us who know that that is probably the reality of our lives. That is probably par for the course. It's a part of the issue. It's so normal to us that we didn't even know it was a problem. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing out a cover plate, bring it to the stage, and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with their appetite for food? In a similar way, I think if we were visited by other countries, they would immediately see that we have a problem. Our culture has an issue. I guarantee if you walk around the city for a while and then tell me what you'll see, you'll see that we have an issue. I mean, think about it. What we see in our culture is promulgated in the most common common sayings. Live every day like it's your last. One life to live. You only live once. Live your best life now. That's what we're told. It's all a part of the culture. And it is actually the same thing that Paul is addressing in his time. The issue of idolatry, specifically the self-indulging one, has been going on for thousands of years. You may notice here that it says that when he gets here, that there are two groups of people mentioned. It is the Stoics and the Epicureans. And let me tell you about them. They felt that the primary goal in life, because the body was fleeting and life was ending, that this corruptible body would be destroyed anyway. So you should enjoy all of the pleasure you can now, whether it's Pleasure of food, pleasure of uh, mind and stimulation, no matter what that pleasure was, you enjoy it to your full capacity because at some point this life and this body is going to end. In fact, their philosopher life was nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death. Pleasure can be attained. Pain can be endured. That's the same philosophy of our culture today. All of life is what we have now and thereby we have the right to indulge ourselves in our own truths, in our own feelings and in our own desires of pleasure. If we are going to be effective Christians in a secular society, we have been called to forsake falling into the cultural norms. That also means that we must do as Paul did. And that's the second point. He confronted the culture. He confronted the culture. This is significant in the experience of Paul. He comes in and 
He is invited to speak. They knew he was an intellectual. They knew he was brilliant. He said, why don't you come up and speak? And he does. And once he saw what the culture was doing, he didn't take this as an opportunity to sit by quietly and say, well, that's what they do. He didn't do that. He said, no, I'm going to address it because what they are doing is actually dishonoring to God. Again, Paul is able to be in this space with these intellectuals who were wise in the world, but foolish in the things of God. And they viewed him as an influencer. I do find it a bit amazing that Paul is able to navigate through these cultures, but never lose his integrity in who he was. He is able to engage with these people, yet his morality and the righteousness that had been given to him through Jesus Christ was so strong and so rooted in the truth that nothing could move what he believed was right. This is where his awareness of the ethical misfortunes of that culture are most beneficial. He addressed it. Look at what he does. Paul essentially calls him out and says, you know what? I actually do perceive that you are a pretty religious group, but what you call God and what I call God are not the same. I don't know how often I see it on Facebook specifically that people are talking about you got to manifest and and I wrote up my vision board and God got to do this. And what you call God is not what I call God. I don't know how many times I say, well, God, you know, God got me. He going to get my people. What you call God is not what I call God. Because more and more I realize that we may be using the same word, but we mean two totally different things. And I think too often we are so afraid to actually engage. But what you are doing is you are defending the truth of who our God is, the God of the Bible, so that people don't get it mixed up. When I say God, I'm not talking about the universe. I'm not talking about the sun. I'm not talking about what I feel. I'm talking about the unequivocal God of the Bible, the real, true, everlasting God. That's the God I'm talking about. There is no fear on his part. In telling them that, yeah, you are worshiping a God that isn't the real God. But he actually qualifies what he means when he says it. I mean, really, he is masterful in how he does this with a great deal of boldness. But he is not doing any more than what any of us have all been called to do as disciples. We are to see where the culture is going wrong, specifically regarding God. And we are called to address it. That's nothing more than what is required of any of us. And what we have, while we may be so grateful for the opportunity to live in this social media age and have all these opportunities to have a platform, but that also means that we have another standard of accountability because we have our own little pulpits and platforms to declare truth. Even Paul didn't have this. We don't have to go to the middle of the city. We can declare truth. We can confront truth. And a moment's notice. Notice that how Paul, even knowing that he will at least be ridiculed, still decides to communicate the truth. How often do we, when we have an opportunity, to communicate and declare truth, do we do it? 
And I mean, look, I don't think because I pastor the church that I should be leading the charge. I don't think that's the case. But I do know that whenever there is something that is said or done that is in opposition to the truth of the Bible, I feel a moral obligation to God to defend him. And I will. I will. Not because I'm great or I'm grand or I'm special, but because I know he's great. He's mighty. He's powerful. And I will not have anybody bring him down to our level. I won't stand for it. How are we engaging people in the same way? What does this all boil down to? This culture, like our culture, was obsessed with itself. See, this sermon is called the Idol Factory, but what type of idols are the factories producing? Every day, they are producing these little graven images of us. That's what they're doing. I quote Romans chapter 1 so much that you probably know it by heart, but the passage really gives us this current passage gives us more context on that passage. So let's look back at it with this context. In Romans 1:21, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, being because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So let's look at this. Paul comes in and says, I see that you are very religious. What does Romans 1 say? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They say to him, what does this babbler wish to say to us? What does Romans say? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The God who made everything, he says, does not live in temples. What did Romans say? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He calls it out just as it is, and he isn't afraid of their commentary or their backlash. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that the people are going to talk about him. And we can see that when they called him a babbler, even as he's getting up and for a moment they are with him, they're like, oh, yeah, we like this. This spiritual intellectual stuff you're talking about, it says people came in and out all the time so they can share and hear. And they were with it for a moment. But then he mentions Jesus and the resurrection. It says, and some of them left. They probably thought, oh, I thought this was going somewhere. You sounded intelligent from the beginning. that You were just one of those other fools who represents and worships that Jesus man. It was cool while it lasted, but I'm a dip. That's basically what happens here. We're not going anywhere with you with that resurrection foolishness. This is it. To the world, they will be with us about that God stuff, 
until we get on that real God stuff and you realize that their God and the true God don't mesh well together. Think about it. Once I present to someone the God of the Bible, if the image of themselves is who they worship, then they will hate the true God. They will. Because the God that they've created is a God who answers them regardless of their life, regardless of their habits, regardless of their sins, regardless of their dedication to him. The God they created must respond to them. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, no, you must respond to me. That you are not sovereign and in control, oh man, but that I am sovereign and in control. I was telling my students recently that every false God and every false religion in some way is glorifying to man. Our faith says that the only value that man has is that we were crafted in the likeness and the image of the immutable God. Now, we may say that, say from our text, what's the point of all of this if they just end up thinking Paul was a fool? And this is the point is our final point. Point number three. But some believed. But some believed. It says, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysus, the heir of a guide, and a woman named Amaris, and others with them. You know, it can be really difficult. I'm a witness of this, even discouraging. Trying to keep your own faith, trying to maintain and work out your faith with fear and trembling. It can be difficult to do that. But I find it to be even more difficult to do it when you have people scoffing at the fact that you're doing it. I find it incredibly challenging when I stand before my students at the school who don't really believe and I tell them these truths and they respond, well, it sounds like God is narcissistic. That's what I heard two weeks ago. It's hard to convince myself every single day that this labor is a labor of love unto God and not to myself. So what is the encouragement? Paul is in the midst of a group of people who thought that they were wise, but they were wise in this world. They called themselves intellectual, but the reality was that they were fools. It could have seemed like all was for naught and purposeless, but even in the midst of this culture, there were people, because of Paul's, dedication to the truth who still were excited to hear the gospel and who were saved by it. You know, when I was thinking about this, it really does go back to the mission of our church, which just says, you know, know Christ, grow in Christ, so Christ in others. And in the origination of our church, I said that we are not responsible for the ground. We are only responsible for sowing the seed. We don't have control over what kind of sowing or what kind of ground it is, but we do have control over the seed, and the seed is the word of God. It's that simple. We are the sowers. In the midst of dry land, God always has fertile ground. He always has fertile ground. 
And his promise to us is that his word will not return to him void. And if he has begun a good work in us, he will perform it. I want you to remember some of the things that I said to you today in this sermon. And I want you to think about how we personally are all bent towards being idolaters and bent towards idolizing things that are not God. I want you to remember how easily idolatry will creep in without us knowing. And I want you to be as an effective ambassador of Christ that you can be. And my closing advice to you is in how to be as effective as you can be is don't succumb to the culture. Please don't succumb to the culture. Resist. Stand out. Stand against it. And continue to share your faith. And use every opportunity you have and every platform that you see as an opportunity to counter the culture of this world, to stand for the truth and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do not give up in sowing the truth. In a world of mockers and scoffers, and the Bible said that the day will come that they will scoff and say, where is this appearing of your Savior? That you don't Give in to what the culture is doing and saying. But you give everything you have to the truth. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us, God, such rich truth, God, and a manual, a, a way to live, God, that engages with and navigates through the culture. God, it is quite easy for every single one of us to succumb to our own idolatry or do what the culture is doing, just do what everybody else is doing. But God, you have given us what we need to stand out, to be separate from the culture, but to also address and engage the culture and to know that in doing that, there will be some who believe. God, continue to give us the fruitful evidence of the life that we live, that there are people, God, who are being saved because of the truth of the gospel that we share. Lord, it is my prayer that you will give us the courage of the men and women that came before us, the courage of the people in Afghanistan who are standing for truth, the courage of every believer who may be in hostile territory and realize, God, that if you are willing to send Christ to a cross on our behalf for our sins, that we are no greater than our master and that we should bear our cross with joy and with love and with dedication to you. Lord, if there's anybody here or who's watching who doesn't know what that looks like, God, we pray this sermon that the revelation of the gospel will pierce their hearts. They will repent and believe the truth. That is our prayer, God. That you will lead us, that you will direct us, that you will guide us in truth, in wisdom, and how we are to live and engage your cultures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.